Community Radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Hey, Kevin. Hi, Anne. Here we are on our own little separate bits of the screen. <laughs> yeah, look, I'm getting used to this this disconnect. You know, like I used to be quite a social person before the COVID thing started, Anne, and like to go out and meet people and the rest of it. And I've become recluse. <laughs> I quite like I don't, I, Kevin I don't the like people anymore. It's it's nicer when you don't have to speak to them. They just. Uh, they... <laughs> The, the worst thing about my pandemic experience is that nothing changed for me. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of, I used to speak to people because I thought I had to. And now that I realise that you don't have to, it, it's it's kind of nice. You know, Kevin, you're my favourite person to talk to about <laughs> well, macroeconomics, that, well, don't you? Thank you, Anne. That's just lovely. And you are, you're my favourite person too. Maybe because we have these good conversations, we don't need to speak to anybody else. That's no, right. Um, so actually, I still like going to music festivals and I do like that whole experience. And that might be my only social connection from here on in. I'm just going to go and watch live music in one format or another. And the rest of the time, I'm in lockdown. You're a man of extremes, aren't you? From like isolation <laughs> to like the thumping sweaty crowds. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, um, what are we talking about this weekend? What's the uh, what's the agenda? Well, you know, I've been sitting here in my isolation and getting a little bit preoccupied about the spending that the government is doing while we're all in lockdown to help us all survive. So we've got all this debt and we have to be an economically responsible government. And because we're incurring so much debt, look, we'd like to pay everybody, but we can't because we've got this debt. So this debt, this is the excuse that government uses to uh, say that we can afford to pay for these people, but we can't afford to pay for those people. And now what we've learned is that we spoke to this fellow, Martin Watts and others, who have been explaining debt to us. And once you start understanding debt, what happens? It's like taking the red pill. (laughs) Suddenly you see through all the illusions. So there's supposed a line in the sand that had to be drawn because the government couldn't go into too much debt. And supposedly we're going to have to pay it all back. All of those illusions just fall away. What we're learning through this macroeconomic discussion that we have is that we need to understand what's being said, the misinformation that we're being fed. It seems that everything is pretty much back to front with economics. How we think the way the economy works is usually the reverse to how it actually does work. So one theme that we have to dispel is that government does not run like a household. It doesn't have to balance its books in the way that a household does. It has a completely different economic structure. And once you understand that structure, you can understand that debt is not an issue and that these bastards who run government are being quite particular about who they want to help and who they don't. And it's all ideology, not practical. The relationship between the government and the household, they're like in a mirror image to each other. And if you think that the government's like a household, you've got it completely upside down. So it's like Alice through the looking glass when you start getting into this macroeconomics. So we're talking with Martin Watts, who is from the University of Newcastle. Correct. And he does mention that he's with a group called Coffee, and that's short for Centre of Full Employment and Equity, which is the centre that Professor Bill Mitchell runs. Excellent. And so here we speak to Martin Watts, we've spoken to Bill Mitchell before. These are economists who want to see uh, full employment underpin how our economy works, and they explain some of the the myths about debt and uh, how this can be achieved. So shall we hear from Martin Watts? Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Professor Martin Watts to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Welcome to the show, Martin. Thanks very much for the invitation. You're an Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Newcastle, and you are also a Research Associate at the Centre of Full Employment and Equity. We had Bill Mitchell on in a previous show, and he's a Director of that Research Centre. You, Martin, also spent a number of years as a lecturer at the Department of Economics at Monash University. So you've been around the traps a bit in the world of economics. 
And I'm just wondering, was macroeconomics your first love when it came to economics? Well, that's a good question. I was doing economics and various types of maths at A-level in the UK. And in those rather heady days or years at the end of the 1960s, students seemed to have quite a lot of power. And we decided there was too much maths and it wasn't very relevant. And so we negotiated a sort of intermediate course between Massicon and economics. Anyway, I went to Manchester to do a master's, went to the University of British Columbia because they gave me a scholarship. As part of the uh, extended adventure, I ended up at Monash, where I met mainly orthodox economists because I'd really been hired as an orthodox economist because my thesis was very orthodox. And there was a student there called Bill Mitchell, who was uh, doing a master's degree, and I got to know Bill well. So we've known each other a long time. I've got to ask the question, did you corrupt Bill or did he corrupt you? <laughs> no, he he corrupted me. He Well, we tried to write papers about Marx, actually. He announced that he was going to Newcastle. There were jobs in Newcastle, and this would be a something of a, a fresh start because Monash was, in fact, a very orthodox department. When, in a way, the rest is history. The coffee got set up in 1998. Well, it's thrived in the interim. Modern monetary theory has got a lot of coverage, particularly post-GFC and more particularly in the last two or three years. You're one of the co-authors of the only macroeconomic textbook written for university students that is from this perspective of modern monetary theory. So for that reason alone, I feel like you'll go down in economic history. But would you regard yourself as a modern monetary theory economist or as a general macroeconomist? Well, I would regard myself as a macroeconomist who has a particular view about the world, which I think is substantiated not in terms of theory, but in terms of what I would describe as institutional practice. In other words, an integral part of modern monetary theory is these key institutions like banks and the central bank and treasury in particular, is how those institutions operate on a day-to-day -day basis. I think we'll get into looking at that in more detail. It seems to me like it's important to point out when you were mentioning the orthodox economists that you were hanging around with and then moving over to more of a heterodox point of view, that really means that you were still rebelling. You're a rebel as a student, rebelling against all these mathematical formulas that you had to deal with. And then it still takes a bit of a rebellious attitude, I think, to question the mainstream economics, which we feel has gotten into us into a lot of trouble over the last few decades. There is this idea of academic freedom. When I started teaching courses which had a modern monetary theory content, which would have been in the 2000s. I was senior enough to essentially teach what I thought was defensible. Now, that doesn't mean I taught exclusively modern monetary theory. I would contrast it to orthodox theory. And it wasn't until 2012 that I started teaching first-year macro that led to my involvement in the textbook. There seems to be a fair amount of pushback as soon as you say MMT or modern monetary theory. And it seems that the orthodox narrative on the economy doesn't like to be challenged or threatened. Can you give an explanation as to why MMT might be viewed with scepticism? I think it's viewed sceptically by many because they get a very superficial view of what MMT is about. I think vested interests are at play here. Namely, that there are some who are prepared to change their ideas, but there are people in senior positions whose reputation, their income stream is very much dependent on using their authority in terms of putting a particular line. So we're storming the citadel in a way. 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au.
macroeconomics is all the rage these days, and I imagine uh, economists are quite in demand by the media because everyone's wanting an explanation for how on earth has the government managed to suddenly spend billions, like hundreds of billions of dollars in a matter of weeks. And that seems pretty scary. So how on earth are we going to pay for all that? Shall we start by looking at the government, the Australian government, what its capacity to spend actually is? I think the starting point should be understanding the fiat currency. So the stuff we carry around with us and is represented by numbers in our bank accounts is a fiat currency. And if you look at a $100 note, its intrinsic value is virtually zero. For some reason, people put a considerable value on a $100 note and they use it in transactions. The state is the issuer of this fiat currency. And the state, in a, in a sense, forces people to give value to the currency by demanding that taxes are paid in that currency. Then this stuff, this fiat currency becomes acceptable, not only in terms of paying your taxes, but in terms of transactions between firms and households. What's this word fiat? Because I keep thinking of a car. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just a piece of terminology. The state has announced this is the currency. Essentially, the government is the sole issuer of the currency. Because everybody accepts the currency, the state is in a position to buy any good or service which has a price denominated in the currency. There is no direct constraint on government spending. Let's give that a, um, a practical example. Just recently, uh, we've had the JobKeeper program, uh, which costs something like $130 billion. So what's the process of, of currency being created? Well, a whole load of keyboard operations where accounts are credited of the recipients of the JobKeeper allowance. There's an administrative process beforehand identifying who's entitled and so on. And then magically, people find when they look at their account details that they've been credited with $3,000. Uh, my daughter got four weeks JobKeeper and uh, $3,000 minus a bit of tax. It is that simple. It wasn't dependent on taxes being raised or they didn't send out somebody from Treasury to go sell some bonds overseas before they came up with the idea of allocating JobKeeper payments. It's done independently of any of that. It's, it's just a procedural matter. It is a procedural matter. Equally, what the, the Australian Office of Financial Management will be doing will be issuing government debt and selling it in line with the deficit. In other words, government spending, including obviously JobKeeper and JobSeeker and all the other initiatives, minus taxes, plus any interest payments on the existing debt. So that's the fiscal deficit. The debt management agency, which in this case is the Office of Financial Management, issues debt equal to the value of that anticipated deficit. So that's where debt appears in the picture. And this is referred to as full funding. To all intents and purposes, it's engaged in borrowing. Why does a currency issuer issue debt in precisely that currency? And the argument for doing this, in part, is it's about accountability. So we can see that, yes, the government has spent more than it receives in tax receipts. So what you're saying is... The government, with all its stimulus packages, let's say it's spent $200 billion. We'll just round it off. Now, at the same time, the Office of Financial Management is going to issue $200 billion worth of debt. That's what they'll do. That's what they'll do. Yeah. And when we say issue debt, we're saying they're going to make $200 billion worth of bonds. Which will be sold to their authorised dealers. Why do they call issuing bonds debt? Well, it's a promise to pay interest and pay the money back. Oh, I see. It's like saying we've just issued a bunch of IOUs. Well, it effectively is an IOU. So the Office of Financial Management is going to issue debt. The debt is going to be in the form of what we call bonds. Well, let me just make one very simple point, that uh, government debt of countries like Australia 
UK, US. Government debt is riskless. In other words, the interest will be paid on it, guaranteed. When the bond matures, the balance will be paid up as per usual. So it's not like buying a corporate asset, which there may be default. Okay. So when we use this word bonds, there's different kind of bonds. And the bond thing that the government, this office of financial management is going to do $200 billion worth of, they're federal government bonds. And they're bits of paper that says, we'll pay you interest. And you're saying they're risk-free because the federal government is the issuer of the currency. So we know it can always pay that interest in the Australian currency. So if it was like a state government bond or a corporate bond, it would be more risky because you wouldn't have that guarantee. Yes, neither state governments nor firms are issuers of the currency. The orthodox economists believe that the government bonds have to be paid off. What's the orthodox explanation as to how that's paid? Well, the orthodox explanation is tax revenue is going to pay for it in the future. And that's how the future generations are going to suffer because they're going to be paying higher taxes. That is the normal narrative. Once you recognise that the Australian government and UK government and so on are currency issuers, then there can be absolutely no doubt that these countries can always pay their debt. So it's really important to know with a federal government what its relationship to its currency is. And here in Australia, the federal government is the currency issuer. So a government can always pay off its debt denominated in this country in Australian dollars. Why issue bonds? As I say, there is this uh, tradition, which is certainly in this country, in the UK, in terms of issuing debt in anticipation of the size of the fiscal deficit. And it's about accountability and transparency and all the rest of it. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. That was a track from our feature band this week called Alpine. The uh, the band Alpine, local band from Melbourne. Good band. I saw them last year at a festival. That song was called Villages off their album A is for Alpine. Now, we're going to return to our interview with Martin Watts, who's an economist from the University of Newcastle. So let's continue with that interview. The government's just done this fiscal, we call it fiscal spending. The government issues its own currency. Therefore, when it spends, it's not going into a debt that it can't pay back. It's just a number on the books we call a deficit. Yes, the government strictly is not required to borrow. But curiously enough, you have this very simple relationship between the issue and sale of bonds and the anticipated fiscal deficit. Why would you ever issue debt in your own currency when you can pay it back? It's one of those strange mysteries of life. To answer that, you've got to talk about the banking system and the role of the central bank, what it does every month and how it oversees the operation of the payment system. We actually need to take a step back and look at the banking system so we can understand what this bond-issuing stuff is all about. Yes. Banks are concerned that they always have adequate balances themselves. What I mean by balances is what is technically referred to as reserves. Now, these reserves essentially take two forms. Firstly, there's vault cash literally what the bank has got on the premises and in the ATM machine. And all banks have accounts at the central bank, the RBA. Banks hold reserves so that they can accommodate the payment system so that they've got adequate funds to enable the reconciliation to take place at the end of the day. Most of the business affecting banks involves the resolution of millions of transactions which take place every day. So every time you wave your credit card or debit card at one of those machines, a transaction is taking place, which involves your account being debited and the retailer's account being credited. 
if you bank at a different bank than the retailer, necessarily there's a transfer going on from your bank to that of the retailer. So what you're saying is if I go into Woolies and I tap my card and I spend $100 and I bank with, say, let's say it's the ANZ, $100 has to come out of my bank account at the ANZ, and let's say Woolies is with Westpac, then $100 has to go into their bank account with Westpac. Correct. And at the same time, there has to be a transfer between your ANZ bank and the bank of the retailer, namely Woolies Bank Westpac. So it's, it's a mirror image, really, of your transaction. Now, millions of these transactions take place every day. So it may be there's been a very large number of customers at the ANZ who bought stuff from retailers who bank at Westpac, in which case there's got to be a transfer of reserves from ANZ to Westpac. At the end of the day, the reserves held by the banks have stayed unchanged. All that's happened is that some banks have more reserves than what they started with at the beginning of the day, and some banks have less because it's essentially a closed system. It's like when you're sitting at a table playing cards, you may start with $100. Uh, at the end of the night, you may have nothing, and the other two have got your 100 plus their 200 between them. It's a zero-sum game, but the distribution of reserves across banks has changed. So we've got this pool of money called reserves. Those reserves exist as accounts that all these commercial banks, NAB, the Commonwealth, whatever, they've each got a bank account with Australia's central bank, which is known as the RBA or the Reserve Bank of Australia. And what's happening is that this money out of these reserves needs to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between all these banks because of all the things that you and I are doing in our day. There's all this payment system happening and we see the top half of it. Like we see my bank account go down and we, you know, we can imagine that the Woolies bank account goes up, but we don't see the bottom half of what's going on. And they do that via a central bank. That's the mechanism. That's correct. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Uh, the month of June is the month that we have our 3CR station appeal. It's a bit of a strange month because everything's gone sideways. But look, if you've got any way of donating to the station during this uh, strange time, it would be very much appreciated. Now, some people are going to be skint. Uh, others might be doing okay. If you've picked up JobKeeper or if your work is still rolling along, jump online to 3cr.org.au. You'll find a button there to click to donate. And if you can help out in any way, that would be very much appreciated. We're a very small station. We need listeners to get behind us. So uh, if you can, thank you. Now we'll get back to our interview with Martin Watts. We're talking about debt and its relation to the banking system. Now banks don't like holding a high level of reserves because they get paid a very low interest rate by the central bank on their holding of reserves. Now, this at the moment is 0.1%. Okay, the banks really hate having reserves because they don't pay a high interest rate. That means they don't earn very much from them. So if they don't like having reserves, why are they in this payment game anyway? If they're going to attract deposits, then they've got to have a system which enables customers to transact on the basis of those deposits. Okay. Now, what the Reserve Bank has got to do is to make sure that the level of reserves held by banks is such that the interbank rate 
does hit the target of 0.25. And in fact, on its website, the Reserve Bank prides itself on hitting the target. You've got three rates which are relevant here. There's the cash rate, 0.25%, the last decision which was back in March when they had the emergency Reserve Bank meeting. It's a very short-term rate. It's an overnight rate. You have this so-called support rate, the rate that banks get on their reserves, which normally is 0.25% lower, would be zero, but the Reserve Bank very generously made it 0.1. And the other rate is a rate of 0.5, which is the rate that banks pay if they are very short of reserves, they can't borrow from other banks, and they have to borrow from the central bank. If a bank has more reserves than it wants to hold, then it has the incentive to try to lend those reserves at a rate of 0.25 to other banks, because there may well be banks which are short of reserves. A bank which is short of reserves does have the alternative option of borrowing from the reserve bank, but they will pay 0.5%. 25 basis points higher than the cash rate. So just as banks with excess reserves want to participate in the interbank market, likewise, banks that are short of reserves also want to participate because they don't want to be stung with a higher rate. If the Commonwealth Bank and you've got cash reserves, you can leave them with the Reserve Bank and they'll pay you 0.1% or you can lend them to other banks and they'll pay you 0.25%. So if, yeah. And if you're another bank, you're short of cash reserves, you can either borrow it from the Reserve Bank at 0.5% or you can borrow it from other banks at 0.25%. So there's always an incentive from banks to deal with each other and, and disincentives to work with yeah. the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank really has an obligation to ensure there is enough liquidity in the system. Now, that means both sufficient reserves being held by the banks, but equally they've got to meet the desire for cash, notes and coins on the part of the public. If a bank is in a particular area is is losing a lot, its ATM machine is being used frequently and cash is flowing out, as obviously it does, say, prior to Christmas, then the Reserve Bank will respond to that because the banks will say, look, we need more cash. Cash that banks hold is part of reserves. It's not solely deposits at the central bank. So by liquidity, it's you and I having enough notes and coins in our pockets as well as banks having adequate reserves so they don't think they're going to get caught short and have to possibly rely on the uh, central bank. So the Reserve Bank every month makes a decision about this so-called cash rate and at the same time implies what the rate will be that the central bank will charge banks if they need to borrow. Also, the rate that they'll pay on reserves held by the banks. You might say, well, what's the significance of all this? Well, the significance of all this is that the cash rate, the rate that the Reserve Bank sets, it underpins the whole structure of interest rates. So it's a very important decision in terms of the spectrum or structure of interest rates. All the other rates, the longer term rates and rates for corporate assets, which will have a degree of risk embedded, flow from that underlying cash rate. If you recall, every time the cash rate is changed, there is the question of what happens to mortgages. And the expectation is that the mortgage rate more or less changes to the same degree as the cash rate. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
That was local band Alpine with their song Gasoline. We're speaking with Martin Watts, who's an economist from the University of Newcastle. So we now have an understanding of why the Reserve Bank of Australia is called the Reserve Bank. It holds reserves for the commercial banks so that they can perform their daily transactions. We've also discussed the interbank lending rate, which is the rate at which commercial banks lend and borrow to each other. It has a target rate set by the Reserve Bank of Australia. This target rate is achieved in what's called a corridor system where the Reserve Bank will lend to the commercial banks at a higher interest rate than the target rate and it will pay to the commercial banks a lower rate than the target rate, encouraging them to trade within themselves. What we need to have a look at now is the relationship between the reserves held by the central bank, government bonds and government spending. So when you think of government spending, those suppliers of goods and services to government will send invoices and will be paid and that will appear in deposits in their accounts. Simultaneously, those banks where these suppliers, contractors bank, they will gain increased reserves, which match the increased deposits. So if it's $1,000, the bank's liability has gone up 1000 but it's got $1,000 of additional reserves. The question then is, are these banks holding more reserves than they actually wish to hold? Banks don't really need to hold for every additional deposit an equal level of reserves. So what banks will do will be to try to unload these excess reserves. So they might try to get rid of $950, let's say, of the $1,000 of extra reserves that they've received. Now, it may well be the case that there aren't other banks that are short of reserves, particularly if the Commonwealth Treasury is spending fairly widely as it's currently doing. So the banks are going to be flush with reserves and they'll be trying to unload those reserves. The interbank market will resolve that problem through the interbank market interest rate falling. So it's supposed to be at 2.5, but the impact of governments running essentially fiscal deficits is to push the interbank rate down. And if the Reserve Bank does nothing, then there will be a divergence between the actual interbank rate, which has fallen, and the promise the Reserve Bank made when it announced the interbank rate of 0.25. So the Reserve Bank has to act to address the problem of excess reserves. And it does that by selling bonds to the banks. Those bonds will be paying potentially more than the interbank rate, which is a better deal than these banks with excess reserves are getting because the interbank rate has actually fallen below 0.25. I think I'm learning something here. What's happening, I think, from what you're saying is that when the government does a whole bunch of spending, an effect of that is to end up with all these reserves sloshing around in the bank accounts that these commercial banks have. And the effect of having all these reserves sloshing around is to drive down interest rates. So the Reserve Bank has to step in with some monetary magic (laughs) to make the interest rates do what it wants them to do. Yes, that's right. The role that the government bonds are playing here is to essentially ensure the credibility of monetary policy. Monetary policy from the early 90s has been all about setting a target interest rate. I think it's very interesting, the statements from Philip Lowe over the last 12 to 18 months, because he's been saying very clearly that there is very limited ammunition left in respect of monetary policy. So what you're saying is that when government is spending, deficit spending, the reserve bank system is flush with reserves. This causes the commercial banks to want to offload their excess reserves to each other, which creates downward pressure on the interest rate that they pay for those loans to each other. So the Reserve Bank uses government bonds to sell those to the banks as a way for them to get a better return and thus stop downward pressure on interest rates. 
and hopefully maintain the target rate, which is currently at 0.25%. Pretty much. point is, at the end of the day, that there is a, a total preoccupation with the debt because this debt is out there and commentators, shock jocks can say, gosh, the debt's going up 500000 a day and the interest bill is whatever. That is persuasive. No doubt the rhetoric over the next few weeks is you know, our children are going to have to pay for it and their children and so on and so forth. It's a trigger for Anne. If you start talking about that, she goes <laughs> off. We've decided we're going to have to sell Kevin's firstborn grandchild to China. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the quick and easy and painless way of killing off that sort of argument is not to issue debt, full stop. Boom, boom. To the casual observer, it looks like the government is taking on debt that it has to pay back. But once you spend an hour with Martin Watts, what you realise is that that's not the case. So, Martin, it's been really great having an economist all to ourselves, and we really thank you for helping our understanding here. Thanks for coming on the show. Can I just say, Martin, that as Anne and I state uh, nearly every week that Anne's an administration, I'm a handyman. Why would you listen to us? Well, you listen to us because we speak to people like you um, who do know what they're talking about. So very much appreciated uh, having you on the show this week. Uh, thank you very much, Martin. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity of talking on 3CR. This is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station, 3CR, with Anne and Kev, Unemployed Workers Fightback Program. Great program. Great guests. <laughs> that was absolutely fascinating, Kevin. I had no idea that there was this bunch of people in Canberra called the Australian Office of Financial Management. Slowly, slowly, what's happening is that we're learning the relationship between Treasury, the Reserve Bank. Now we're finding about the Australian Office of Financial Management. One of the things that modern monetary theory does is look at how all this works from an institutional level. So I guess somebody ran over from Newcastle and went to Canberra and opened some doors and said, what are you guys all doing in here in front of your computers? And I did a version of that the other day. I went online to the government directory. So there's this website called directory.gov.au. So I went and looked up the Australian Office of Financial Management. How many staff do you reckon they have? I reckon they should have about three. <laughs> One more than us. They've actually got 47. And these are the guys that are issuing debt to cover Josh's deficit, Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer. There they are, 47 of them, all uh, beavering away, and their expenses last year, how much do you reckon it cost them to do what they're doing? So you've got 47 people. Mm -hmm. Let's say they're quite well-paid government servants, and they're on $300,000 each. that's generous. <laughs> hey, if you're in charge of financial management, chances are you probably won't give yourself a decent pay packet, okay? So, so there's 50 of them, and they're earning 300 grand each. I always get my zeros mixed up. How much is that? We're we talking. Uh, You're about there. It's fifteen million. Fifteen million. There you go. Mm. Does that include their office and everything else, or is that just wages? <laughs> I don't know if it includes like you know the coffee and the <laughs> and the sugar and the, the milk in the fridge. Well, it probably does. Making sure that the uh, bond issuance matches the deficit. Good on them. <laughs> and, and this is because that they have a, a policy. One thing we have, I have learnt recently, uh, along with yourself, is that they look after what's known as full funding. And they have to balance all the outgoings with bonds or debt, uh, which is something we really need to investigate because I don't know why they have to do that. <laughs> they feel that they have to, but I, I'm not sure what the purpose is. It's funny how they can have full funding but not full employment. We'll have to look into that one a bit more. Yes. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. And speaking of balancing the books, did you hear about the $60 billion recently yeah. that was overlooked? Did I hear about 60 <laughs> If there's $60 billion bucks lying around and I can grab some of it, Anne, as you can through JobKeeper apparently, uh, yes, I'm interested. Yeah. I don't know how it happened, but somehow the money that was going to go into the JobKeeper is now down from $130 billion to $70 billion. And I'm a little bit worried about the whole JobKeeper thing because the idea with JobKeeper is it was going to keep the relationship between the person who's working and their employer so that the industries 
coming out of the lockdown would be all in place still. Sounds like a good program to me, Anne. As you know, I'm a self-employed handyman and my work has actually declined. People don't want me coming Mm. to their houses to fix things because they're scared (laughs) they're going to catch a disease. Uh, So I've actually applied for JobKeeper and I'm hoping I receive JobKeeper. So I support this program. But tell me more. I am myself receiving JobKeeper. But there's a whole lot of people out there who did not get JobKeeper and who probably desperately need it. These people include casual workers who have not been with an employer for more than 12 months. So guess who misses out? Most of your arts and entertainment industry because people in those industries are usually working gigs that last four or five months or whatever. I can confirm that, Anne, because uh, before I became uh, a highly skilled handyman, I was actually in the events industry for 30 years. All my mates work in the events industry and they're all unemployed. They've all got nothing going on. These are people who have been working in the industry for decades, but gigs don't go for more than a year. It's gig by gig. So you do a season here, you do a show there. There's not a lot of continuous work in the arts. And so, of course, as you say, they all miss out on the JobKeeper program because they don't have 12 months, never have had 12 months continuous work with anybody. It's always just a leapfrog arrangement. In fact, I came across a submission to the Senate Inquiry about the Australian government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And this woman, Esther Anatolitis, who is the executive director of the National Association for the Visual Arts, she was writing that 70% of the workers who earn arts-related incomes, they also work as casual teachers in uh, tertiary education sector and often in hospitality. So the two main sectors that have been hardest hit by the pandemic, the arts and entertainment and hospitality and also there's travel, there's a lot of overlap in the people who work in those sectors. And these are the people who are not getting payments. The other people that are also not getting a payment are Australians living and working in Australia are finding out that their companies are owned by overseas entities. So because the company is overseas, they're not getting a payment. Australian workers who are overseas and stranded overseas, they're not getting payments. Migrant workers who are on visas here, they're not getting payments. Uh, International students who are stranded here, no payments. Asylum seekers, no payments. And also there's about 150,000 people who get the disability support pension. Their pensions did not go up the way Newstart went up with JobSeeker. And also there's about 50,000 people on carers' payments and their payments did not go up. It's not as if nobody pointed this out to Josh and ScoMo. And you can see the amendments where some of the politicians were doing their best to try and get these people included and they got voted down. Like those amendments got voted down. It's not as though they were overlooked or they didn't notice that these people were in need. The government has deliberately excluded them. And in fact, Josh Frydenberg, he had to change the JobKeeper rules three different times in order to make sure that the university casuals could not get the payments. So Josh has got these special powers to write amendments at the moment and he's been sort of doing his darndest not to let the universities have any say. And they have to make rules. For example, with the universities, they had to say that the universities had to show a drop in revenue of between 30 to 50%, not 15% like the other charities. And the universities had to count their government grants, unlike the other non-profits. So you really have to think hard and work hard to exclude people. Why are they doing this, Ed? What's the agenda? I mean, they have to draw a line somewhere, is what we've been told. Now, if you were a conservative government, Kevin, and you didn't like industries that produce a lot of critique of government, who question authority, what kind of industries might they be? I'm having to read between the lines here, Kevin, but I can't help thinking that the arts industry and the academics, they're all a bunch of progressives, aren't they? A bunch of hippies. Bloody greeny (laughs) progressives with all these alternative thoughts. You've got to draw a line somewhere to be fiscally responsible. Well, you know, we're calling these things support packages. And what comes into my head is I think about the Titanic. There's all these lifeboats that are floating around in the water. And there's one of those lifeboats that's got Josh Frydenberg in it. And he's standing there with an oar. 
<laughs> and every time some poor old soul comes crawling up out of the water and tries to crawl into the boat, he just bangs on their knuckles with the oar until they sink back into the water. They're swimming up and, he go, and they're going, help, help, I need rescuing, I need rescuing. And he goes, no problems. Um, let me just ask you a few questions. Uh, now, how do you feel about uh, taxation reform <laughs> or, you know, the environment? Or <laughs> What's your opinion or, about the, the coal industry? If you give the wrong answer, you just get <laughs> right, smacked. Smacked over the head. <laughs> Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our June Station Appeal. We'll be taking donations online to help keep the station going for another year. Like so many community organisations, we're feeling the impact of COVID-19 restrictions, and we know you are too. But independent community media is more important than ever, and we hope you can show your support with a donation. The 3CR Station Appeal starts on Monday the 1st of June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, here to stay. So you're on JobKeeper and I've applied for it. I'm quite looking forward to that uh, turning up, if it ever does. I'll leave it when you see it. Uh, It's not often that the government gives this sort of assistance to ordinary workers. They normally save that for their entitled mates, the top end of town. So I'll gladly take uh, any assistance that the government can throw my way at this particular occasion because it's a very rare thing. Look, it's good that they introduced the JobKeeper program. It's good that they doubled New Start and called it Job Seeker. But I get the impression they were kicked, dragging and screaming probably by Treasury officials saying that they had to do this. And I fully believe that they will wind it back savagely as soon as they can because their heart's just not in it. The only reason they're doing it is to save face. They don't care about ordinary struggling Australians. As I mentioned, there's a Senate inquiry into the Australian government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I was reading through some of the submissions. I just want to read an extract from what this woman's written, just so we can put uh, some real details to those numbers that we've been talking about. So she writes... I was stood down from my position as a remedial massage therapist on the 26th of March with a separation certificate. My online claim for JobSeeker was approved on April the 8th with an expected first payment on April the 9th. Ten days went by. I didn't know why my payment was delayed. I just assumed that the system was overloaded. Unbeknownst to me, an outstanding task remained on my file from a Ausstudy application I'd made seven years ago, which I'd abandoned. This prevented the system from loading the current required reporting task for JobSeeker. Over the course of a week, I spoke to five Centrelink staff who all endeavoured to help me, and that involved hours on the phone. Eventually, they managed to remove the old report and get a payment into my bank account. The bad news was that doing so had created another glitch in the system which terminated my original claim from April the 3rd. And here I am, nearly a month after being stood down and I am not currently in the system to receive a job seeker payment. I really don't know what else to do. Give it a week and try it all over again. I have no job, no income, and I don't know if I will ever be able to return to work in my current field of expertise. I had hoped to stay with my current employer for another 10 years until retirement. I live in rural Victoria and know the challenge that older women face in seeking employment. Basically, my world's been turned upside down by COVID-19. Life will never be the same again. And I currently don't have any means of support. Can you imagine how desperate you must be to write a Senate inquiry to try and go, what the hell do I do next? It makes me feel a bit complacent because I'm sitting here sort of feeling a bit smug about the fact that hopefully I'm going to be uh, eligible for JobKeeper. If it doesn't come through, things are going to be tight for me. I'll I'll manage to get by. But uh, there are some people who are just left completely high and dry. And as we've seen with the um, the robo-debt, on the basis of the class action that was coming the government's way, They've just had to backtrack from this whole thing. But it just shows how this government doesn't care. No. This is a government that doesn't care about people who are struggling. 
doesn't care about people on New Start when it was less than 300 bucks a week. They then hit those people up with these automatic robo-debts done on some averaging uh, nonsense. Mm-hmm. They've had to struggle for months to try and uh, cope with that. And now we find with this job seeker thing, it's like, look, we're, we're going to toss some money out there. Uh, sure, people are going to be hard hit. They don't care. They don't represent the average Australian at all. So we've learned quite a lot this, this uh, well, I've learned a bit from this last episode about uh, the the reason the debt is not an issue. If your government say we can't afford these packages because mm-hmm. of the debt, if the government starts heading down the road of austerity on the basis that they've got to draw the line somewhere, call them out. Know that it's mm-hmm. bullshit. It's, it's nonsense. It's like Dr. Stephen Hale said on our show one time, you can wipe the floor with them. <laughs> My housemate Pete did this online the other day. Somebody was saying, "Oh, but you know, the government's had to borrow all this money from overseas to fund the uh, to fund all this spending," and he tore them to shreds with facts. Uh, they, they, <laughs> they just they didn't bother replying because they were dead in the water, you know. So, if you want to have these discussions with people, or if you just want to know for yourself, just get your head around the logistics of debt and why it's not important in this discussion. And to arm yourself with the facts, there are plenty of resources out there. You can read a bit or watch a video or listen to some other podcasts. If you're able to get online, you could head over to modernmoneyaustralia.org. There's people over in the UK at the Gower Initiative. They're at gims.org.uk, g-i-m-m-s.org.uk. Or you could try the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity and they're at global-isp.org. And don't forget our homegrown economist, Professor Bill Mitchell, is writing his blog at bilbo.economicoutlook.net. And if you head over to his website, you'll see where he's started an online pilot program that's absolutely free. You can go and do your free education in macroeconomics with Professor Bill Mitchell at MMT Ed, or you could treat yourself to a soon-to-be-released book by Stephanie Kelton, and her book is called The Deficit Myth. So there is a few places to go to arm yourself with the facts. Nicely played, Anne. Uh, we have to make room for Mafalda, who's coming up next. Don't forget the 3CR station drive. Uh, Community radio is very important Mm -hmm. to Melbourne, and if you're in a position to chuck a few bucks towards the station, it would be very much appreciated at the moment. So, Anne, thanks for another good show. You too, Kevin. And uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second Friday of each and every month as part of The Sewer Show on 3CR. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. The pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, I insist. The pleasure was mine. Well, it wasn't all yours. I mean, I had a fair degree of pleasure on this show. It was uh, very pleasurable for me. Oh, no, Kevin, I was highly pleasured. You looked like you were having fun, and it looked very pleasing to you, but uh, I'm just wondering whether I had more fun than you did. I had a lot of fun. It was very pleasurable. I have a sandwich.